Then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad, and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Hmm. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, set from the chief priests to the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Hmm. And chapter 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The word of the Lord. Many of us gathered here last Wednesday to begin the season of Lent together as we celebrated Ash Wednesday. And we heard the account of the woman who anointed Jesus with very expensive perfume to prepare him for his burial. Lent leads us to the cross of Christ and Jesus' burial. Of course, the story doesn't end there. But before we get to the resurrection of Christ, he is crucified in his burial. That encounter between Jesus and this woman is the first of a series of encounters of various people, and often significant people, that Jesus has uh, that takes place throughout his passion. This sermon series through Lent is going to focus on those encounters with various people and the encounters Jesus had with them and they with him. 
And we will use Matthew's Gospel to do this. And maybe the most notorious encounter in the final days of Jesus' life was between Judas and Jesus. It was Judas who betrayed Jesus Christ into the hands of the Jewish authorities, leading to his eventual condemnation and his death. What do we make of Judas Iscariot? Judas was one of the twelve. He had a special relationship with Jesus. He was chosen by Jesus, and he was in the inner circle. Jesus wanted Judas with him. They worshipped together, they prayed together, they ate together, they fellowshiped together, they traveled together, they served together, talked together. I mean, is it hard to imagine that they loved one another? I think they did. When Jesus gave his disciples authority over unclean spirits and power to heal diseases and sickness, Judas was included in that. Judas was trusted. He was charged with spreading the gospel, just like the rest of the disciples. There must have been some good in the man for Jesus to have chosen him, not only to follow him, but to be one of the twelve. Well, Judas goes to the chief priests, who along with the elders have plotted a conspiracy to arrest and to kill Jesus. And Judas asks what they are willing to give him if he will deliver Jesus to them. Judas sees value in Jesus. He understands that there is personal gain for him because of Jesus. His relationship with Jesus has turned into what he can get out of it. Every person should be careful about claiming Jesus only for what we can get out of him. Well, the chief priests offer 30 pieces of silver, or more accurately, 30 shekels. That was the money of the day. And Judas agrees to the deal. 30 shekels? Take it. Thirty shekels was not a significant amount of money. Didn't get rich off the deal. Thirty shekels was the price of a slave's life. In Exodus, there's a list of legal reparations for personal injury and loss, and it says if the bull goers, or a male or female slave, the owner must pay thirty shekels of silver to the master. Of the slave. Well, that might sound kind of random about the bull going something and everything, but the point is the price of the life of a slave. 30 shekels. Now, we contrast Judas and the pittance that he gets for Jesus' life with the story we heard Wednesday night, the story that's right before this. It is of the woman who anoints Jesus with very expensive perfume, the cost of which is an entire year's wages. Jesus says she does this to prepare him for his burial. Here is this unnamed woman who does a beautiful thing for Jesus, maybe even going broke at the cost of this perfume that she wants to give to him. And Judas, on the other hand, wants to know what he can get for Jesus. 
One foretells Jesus' burial, the other sees to Jesus' burial. One gives an extremely valuable gift to Jesus, the other takes an extremely small payoff against Jesus. In the upper room at that first communion, Jesus stops the dinner by telling his disciples that one of them will betray him. And Judas says, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. He's lying. We know that. He knows it's him, just as Jesus knows it's him. St. Jerome said, Jesus, excuse me, Judas joins in with all the other disciples asking Jesus, surely you don't mean me, lest by being quiet he seem to betray himself. You don't want to be the only one who doesn't ask that question, right? If he doesn't say something, it will make what he has done too speak. Judas sells Jesus for his own gain, and he lies to Jesus' face. How does one, a disciple no less, how does he disciple, how does someone get to this place? Luke tells us Satan entered into Judas, but the other gospel writers don't give or maybe don't attempt an explanation. Jesus, Jesus responds to Judas with this at that dinner table. Surely you don't mean I, Rabbi, you have said so. Which, um, can also be read, those are your own words. He doesn't expose him before the other disciples by saying, Judas, yes, in fact, I know you're the one who will betray me. He doesn't do that. And on the other hand, to say no would have been untrue, right? For Jesus not to respond might have been indifference. You know, I wonder if Jesus is giving Judas one more chance. Is he saying, I know who you are. And you know, there's still time to repent. After Jesus shares the Lord's Supper with his disciples, they go to Gethsemane, where Jesus wants to pray. Sometime before Jesus took his disciples there, Judas separates himself to find the chief priests and the elders to lead them to Jesus. Judas knows where to find Jesus because of Jesus' prayer life. Gethsemane was a common place for Jesus to pray. Judas had probably been in prayer meetings with Jesus at that very place. He knows where to find the Lord. And Judas shows up, it says, with a large crowd, and they're carrying swords and clubs. Why do they need weapons? You need weapons if you want to get violent. And there's a sh- some shift in the text about Judas right here. In verse 47, Judas is again identified as one of the twelve, which Matthew has already stated. It's like Matthew is emphasizing this. Can you one of the twelve, the one who will betray Jesus, is one of the twelve, a disciple, a close follower. But in the very next verse, verse 48, Judas is for the first time called the betrayer. No longer just Judas, he is now the betrayer. Judas gives the command to arrest Jesus. He's the one who gives the command. He makes the call and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. The Greek term there suggests a, he kissed him warmly, a sign of affection for a friend that you respect, that you love. What kind of disciple 
twists a greeting of friendship into a death sign. And as Judas gives Jesus away, he approaches him with greetings. He says this, he says greetings. That's what the English Bible says. The, the word is used, in, in, in Greek it was used uh, in the way you would joyously greet a friend that you really were glad to see, but you were going to have some special moments together. And Judas calls him rabbi. Now back in the upper room, Judas also called Jesus rabbi. And if you notice, all the other disciples called him Lord. Rabbi, Lord. Is Lord now too imposing for Judas? If Jesus is not Lord for Judas, then a lot has changed. For some, Jesus is only a great moral teacher, a rabbi. He's not different than any other great religious figure. For others, and this is the confession of Christians, he is the Lord. Who we believe Jesus to be will have everything to do with how we relate to him. If he's not our Lord, then we will, he will have no claim on our life. And well, we can do anything we want for or against him. Judas seems to have shaken off Jesus' Lordship at this point. The story moves on. Jesus is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest Jewish court there is, and Jesus is accused of blasphemy, and they turn him over to the Romans, knowing the government has the power to kill him, which is what they want done to him. After Jesus is condemned, Judas is filled with remorse. He goes to the chief priests and the elders and confesses that he has sinned. He's done this all wrong. Shouldn't have done it. Judas has come face to face with what he's done, and the burden is huge. He goes to the religious leaders and admits he's wrong. This is what he gets back from his spiritual leaders. What's that to us? That's your responsibility. Literally, you see to it. Now the problem with that answer is that it puts Judas in isolation. He is now alone in his guilt, his, his burden of conscience, and his shame. How ironic that the one he betrayed is the one who would show the mercy and the forgiveness that he so needs right now. But now it's too late. And he throws the money that he gained off Jesus' life into the temple. Now Matthew tells us that the religious leaders took those 30 shekels of silver and they bought a field in which to buy for, bury, excuse me, bury foreigners, non-Jews, Gentiles, in other words, a cheap cemetery for people who were a lot less. And it says it fulfills a prophecy of Jeremiah, if you go on and read on. Actually, it's closer to something that we read in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Matthew probably thought of an event in the book of Jeremiah that is there that refers to a potter's field, but really Zechariah is where we need to go. Let me take us there for a moment. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet, and when the Lord becomes frustrated of the shepherds of his people, that they're not caring for the people, that they're using the people for their own gain, he calls Zechariah to be the shepherd of the people. Zechariah gets rid of the bad, false shepherds. And he cares for the people with graciousness and faithfulness. 
And he symbolizes, the point of this is he's symbolizing the coming Messiah and King of Israel to come. But even as Zechariah does this, the people reject him. And they say, we don't want you. So Zechariah gives them an out. He tells them that they can pay him whatever wages he's earned up to this time, or if they don't think he deserves anything, they can just tell him to move along. Zechariah will do whatever. The other shepherds decide to pay Zechariah for his trouble. The price? 30 shekels of silver. The price of a slave's life. It reads like this. Zechariah says, I told him. If you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. That's a cynical, sarcastic statement. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. You see, the wage that Zechariah received was an insult to Slaves. So the Lord told Zechariah, throw the money to the potter in the house of the Lord. In the same way, this is what Matthew wants us to know about Jesus. And really, the chief priests and the elders of Israel, how they sold Jesus for the same insulting amount of money. The life of our Lord for the price of a dead slave. Now, what is Jesus worth to you? A Sunday morning for an hour? Some time here and there? Your very life? Or a few things I think are as painful as being betrayed. Someone said the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. It comes from a spouse. It comes from a friend, an employer, a disciple. You've been betrayed. Jesus knows your pain. Sometimes the betrayer actually comes to a place where he or she owns up to what they Judas came to a place of deep divorce, deep guilt for what he had done. Uh, Tom Long, a, a very fine preacher, one of my professors in seminary, said the deepest tragedy about Judas is not that he is guiltier than others. His guilt is shared by all. I mean, think about it. Peter will deny the Lord. The disciples will abandon him. Everyone's guilty in the story. The saddest truth about Judas is that he took his remorse to the place of death, not the place of life. Like all humanity, he had innocent blood on his hands. That's right. Everyone was responsible for Jesus' death. Judas was responsible. Peter, all the disciples and the believers who cut out on him, Caiaphas and the Jews, Romans, Pilate, you and I are sent to. We all betray him. If you haven't felt that, you probably have never felt the need or the reality of the cross. Judas used Jesus for what he could get out of him. He, he came to a place where he could only see the value of Jesus to him. We betray Jesus when we only see what value he is 
to us instead of submitting ourselves to him. We want to know how Jesus will help us when we get into tight spots in life. We use Jesus to make our churches larger. We use Jesus to justify our point of view. We can subtly use him for our own ego or our image boosts. What can we get out of Jesus? That's to betray him. Jews' discipleship has become a lie. We lie. We lie. We lie to our spouses. We lie to our kids. We lie to our church. We lie to our friends. We lie to ourselves. I've done it. But we should never think we can't return to the Lord. We take our remorse to the place of life. There's a small chapel built for prayer by a church. A small chapel for where people could go and pray and meditate. They put 12 chairs in that chapel. They put a name of each of the 12 disciples on each one of those chairs. The one that was marked Judas was the one that was more most worn and received the most wear after several years. Go figure. There will come a time, if you haven't been there already, when you will know you have horribly failed someone else and, or, you have failed the Lord. There may be not just a single time, but times when you feel that. Peter Kreef put it this way, you will hurt the ones you love, you will lie about it. You will do something embarrassingly bad and not face up to it. You will give others excuses because you will find you will give yourself excuses. And he calls this our inner Judas, which lives in the basement of our souls. Doesn't matter if you're a spiritually gifted, born again, baptized, church-ordained disciple who's one of the twelve, for God's sakes. Doesn't Judas show us that we're all vulnerable? Judas is a kind of comrade for all of us who have betrayed Jesus. He is our patron, Saint Judas. And there can come a failure that is so hard on us, and the guilt and despair will be so great that no therapy, no medication, no amount of vacation, no drink is going to fix it. Only Jesus can do that. So bring that guilt and sadness for what you have done to the cross, where there is mercy, mercy abounding in the cross. Quite frankly, there is no other story, there's no other religion or philosophy, no other system that is like that. And Jesus never condemns Judas. <coughs> Judas condemns himself. Went to the chief priests and the elders with his confession. They said, you handle it. Despairing sinners cannot handle our own sin. Judas had convinced himself that innocent blood was on his hands, the stain could not be removed, but what Judas failed to hear was the answer that Jesus had given him on that very night of his betrayal. What does innocent blood have to do with us? The innocent blood, Jesus said, is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the consistent thing in the whole account of Judas. Jesus never turned on him. Jesus never stopped loving him. He never shut the door for him to come and restore and keep that relationship. Jesus gave him the bread and the cup. 
Jesus called him friend. Jesus still wanted Judas. And that is what he does and will do for us. All who feel guilty, who have done too much or not done enough, who have said one thing with our lips and something else we've done with our actions, come to the cross. And take the guilt to the Lord and exchange it for his forgiveness and his mercy and his acceptance. No one can conceive the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Not even betrayal can disqualify us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Well, I tell you, there's so much about Judas as I read the story and study it this week that is so beyond my understanding. Not everything in the scriptures give total clarity about the abyss of darkness that Judas was in, but the scriptures also do reveal the unfathomable and incomprehensible depth of God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, have mercy on us. Sinners in need of your grace and forgiveness. And when we are at the end of our rope, despairing of life itself, remind us that you wait for us to return to you. Thank you that in the pit of our despair, your love is deeper still.